Hey, another great episode of Roundup is coming up next. If you like what you heard, please go online to redsearadio.org and donate, become a monthly sustaining member, and keep us on the air. Thank you and God bless. Good morning! It is Wednesday, January 6, 2021. I'm so happy to say that rather than 2020. I want to wish everybody a happy new year and also a Merry Christmas since we are today celebrating the 12th day of Christmas. And uh, if we hadn't celebrated Epiphany on Sunday, today we would be celebrating the Feast of the Epiphany. But uh, we celebrated Epiphany on Sunday, so for us here in the Austin Diocese and in most of the dioceses in the U.S., we are celebrating this as a regular weekday of Christmas. You're listening to the Red Sea Roundup. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Deacon Mike Beauvais. Today in our second part, we're going to be speaking with David and Jacqueline Warren about their book, Brilliant. And it is truly a brilliant book. It gives young people an enlightening enlightening look, I can't talk this morning, at 25 Catholic scientists, mathematicians, and just super smart people. And it shows that the Catholic faith and science are not at odds in spite of what we may hear all the time. Before we get into that, though, I want to welcome everyone listening to us here on KEDC 88.5 FM Hearn Bryan College Station. And a shout out to our Central Texas listeners on KYAR 98.3 FM, Lorena Waco. And also a hello to our listeners in Palestine on KINF 107.9 FM. We're live this morning, so if you have something to share about your parish, feel free to give us a call. Number at the studios, 85 Love Red Sea, that's 855 683 7332. And as usual this morning, I am joined by our general manager, Dr. Thaddeus Romanski. Good morning, Thaddeus. How are you? Good morning, Deacon Mike. Happy New Year to you. Merry Christmas. A blessed epiphany to you, sir. Thank you. Uh, Always good to talk to you. You as well. Yeah, and I'm very excited to talk about this brilliant book. Uh, It's not only intellectually brilliant, but it's brilliant to look at. It's beautifully Yes, the crafted. artwork is neat. Yes. And uh, that's going to be a fun conversation because the husband-wife team of Jacqueline and David Warren, um, she's the artist, right? Yeah, and, she's and the one who did all the, the artwork. And he's sort he was of kind of the, the researcher, and then they yes. kind of wrote the thing together, is yes. what I understand. So, yeah, this is going to be a great conversation coming up in the second part of the show. Um, but before we get into that, there's a couple of things I wanted to talk about Um that are important are of importance for us as Catholics. Uh, universally, uh, Pope Francis has just announced that this year we will be observing the year of Saint Joseph. Right, it's a new year in a whole host of ways, isn't it? Yeah, not just a new liturgical year. Right, and so wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about what this actually means and why this is important for us as Catholics. 
Right, so he announced it on the Feast of the Immaculate Conception in 2020, right? And he is it's going to run until Immaculate Conception of 2021, correct? It, correct, and uh, it's interesting to note that in 1870, St. Joseph was named as the patron saint of the Universal Church, and it also came on the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. Oh, okay, I didn't know that. Yes, uh, but most of us have a devotion to St. Joseph. Uh, I have a great devotion to St. Joseph in part because my father adopted me and my siblings, Mm. and his middle name is Joseph. Okay. And so it has always been a reminder to me that Joseph adopted Jesus. Yeah, yeah. And um, so I've always had a devotion to St. Joseph, but in our parish, Many of the people in our parish have had a devotion to St. Joseph, uh, having St. Joseph altars in their homes in gratitude for a blessing that they have received as intercession uh, to St. Joseph. And so um, many people have a devotion to St. Joseph. Anything in particular that you think of when you think of St. Joseph? Well... St. Joseph, um, I think of my, right now I think of my oldest son, whose middle name is Joseph, and I named him, gave him that middle name for my uncle, who carries that name, and my wife's uncle both carried that name. So it was a family name, um, but uh, a beautiful patronage. I mean, I, I think, then I think of my my father, who always uh, stuck close to St. Joseph, brought St. Joseph uh, into a lot of um, prayer and petitionary prayer growing up. St. Joseph is an important saint for um, Italian-Americans and Italian culture generally, so that was something that he uh, just just grew up with. Um, so I think of, you know, family, I think of my heritage when I think of St. Joseph, and then I think of him as a saint who I call on more and more uh, the deeper that I get into my own fatherhood because uh, (laughs) there's just more and more uh, challenges the farther you go along where you realize, you know, I can't do this on my own. I need, I need the intercession of a, of a powerful saint who can, I, I hope infuse in me the graces that I need to, to be a, the best father that I can be. And I think this is one of the reasons why Pope Francis declared this the year of St. Joseph, is because when we look at St. Joseph's life, the things that we are given in Scripture, mm-hmm. it is St. Joseph's role as the head of the family when Jesus was young. And when we see the things that St. Joseph did— we have no idea what St. Joseph said because there's not a single word of his That's right. written in Scripture, but we know what he did. He chose to take Mary into his home in spite of the fact that being a righteous man following the laws of mm-hmm. the Jewish people, mm-hmm. by all rights, he should have had her stoned to death. Mm-hmm. And yet he listened to the angel and protected by doing so the baby Jesus. Yep. And then, of course, we know the story of Herod, 
And again, St. Joseph, listening to the voice of an angel, protected Jesus by taking him and his mother to Egypt. That's right. That's right. And then Scripture tells us that it is St. Joseph who taught Jesus how to be a carpenter and, by extension, how to be a human man. Mm -hmm. And so that protection of the body of Jesus, the body of Christ— carries over into the protection of the church. Right. Which is why St. Joseph was named the patron of the church. And why in this time of difficulty, this time of confusion, this time of discord, the Pope thought it was a good idea that we remember that we're in the hands of just St. Joseph. Mm -hmm. And I think that especially on the family level, this is something worth thinking about. How do we consecrate our families to St. Joseph? And also, we can ask our parishes, why don't we consecrate our parishes to St. Joseph during this year of St. Joseph? Yeah, exactly. And we have such a great need of dependable fathers in this day and age more than ever. And we have a need for men who will step forward and live their faith you know, earnestly and uh, with courage with the in the in the way that St. Joseph did and so I think that he's he's a great model for us uh, in that way not not rashly but just courageously um, and I think this is what is so impressive about his presentation in scripture right it is strictly his actions that are presented actions speak louder than words exactly <laughs> And so we hear so much about, you know, confusion of the role of fathers, the role of males in general. Yes. And St. Joseph is the perfect example of what true masculinity looks like, of what true fatherhood looks like. And so we are well informed if we look at St. Joseph to how to be. A father, yeah, to and, be a I, man. and I think that that kind of brings us around to um, that observation uh, that we found in that article from Father Longenecker, from Father Dwight Longenecker about Saint Joseph, and he kind of boiled all this down to those three virtues of purity, patience, patience and prudence. Oh. That he displayed those three virtues, and you know, maybe just take that out into your take that into your prayer today uh, or into this week of, of asking St. Joseph for greater purity, greater patience, greater prudence in your life as a father. And where, where, do you, where are you displaying those things and where do you need help in improving in those areas? And especially, again, in the climate we're living in, uh, the mm -hmm. culture we're living in, mm -hmm. we need more purity. Mm -hmm. We need more patience. And we certainly need more prudence. And so, again, St. Joseph is the perfect example. And that article that uh, Father Dwight Longenecker wrote uh, on St. Joseph, and uh, it was directly written to a father who was struggling with some of these things that all of us struggle with in this culture. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he used St. Joseph as a perfectly good example. Yeah. Of and on the patience should... piece, I think we especially need patience and prayer because— I, my recollection of 
the appearances to St. Joseph of the angel um, are, you don't get a sense that St. Joseph went to prayer and then, oh, boom, he the angel appeared. It You just hear that the angel appears to him, and what that tells me is that he was in this constant, continual mode of prayer and, and spiritual communion with, with God. So he he patiently waited for God's intervention into his prayer, and he just remained faithful and continued to give thanks, to give praise in his prayer, to ask for what he needed, and 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 then waited for God to to intervene. Does that does that make sense? Yes, and I think it's a perfect example of we always see that image of Jesus standing by a locked door, and the door is locked from the inside. Right. And in order to let him in, we have to open that door. St. Joseph is a perfect example of what it looks like when that door is always open. Yeah. Yeah. And so how do we keep that door open? Well, living out our faith, mm-hmm. our prayer life, mm-hmm. our attendance at mass, mm-hmm. which brings me to another topic. Uh, Bishop Joe Vasquez of the Diocese of Austin has yes. announced this to be the year of the domestic church. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, considering the name of this radio station, Religious Education for for the the Domestic domestic Church, church, has an impact on the radio station also. Because this being the year of the domestic church helps us to focus on the fact that ultimately the domestic church is the kernel that makes up the church. And so, especially again in this year where so many things have gone wrong, When so many things are in confusion, we don't even know whether or not we should be going to church. Well, the answer lies, we always go to church because we have a domestic church. Mm. And sometimes the love, the joy, the connection that we're not feeling because we're absent from well, we should be feeling that at home. Yeah, and I think um, noting that the family is the domestic church, um, that's a reminder that fathers are called to be the priests of their little families, of their little domestic churches. Very good. And again, as the example of St. Joseph shows us, that means doing so with purity, with patience, and with prudence. So as we go to break, Deacon Mike, remind our listeners who they're going to hear about on the other side. Yes, on the other side, we will be talking with David and Jacqueline Warren about their book, Brilliant. And I am so looking forward to this interview because one of my pet peeves is the fact that we keep talking about that there's a discord between faith and science. And we're going to show there is not and hasn't been. I'll see you all on the other side of this break. And we're back, and as promised, in a moment, we're going to be talking with David and Jacqueline Warren about their book, Brilliant. And uh, as I mentioned, it's uh, written for young people to inform them that there isn't this chasm between science and faith. 
David and Jacqueline, it's a pleasure to have you on the air. Deacon Mike, thank you so much. It's uh, great to be on here. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Now, you all work together on this book. What is your background that brought you all to, because uh, Jacqueline, you did the artwork, but how much of the writing did you all uh, work together on? <laughs> well, I did all of the writing and Jacqueline did all of the illustrating, but you know, there was a lot of overlap in our creative process. For instance, I would, you know, research the sort of historical timeline from which these figures lived and Jacqueline would do the visual research, looking up the sorts of clothing that they wore, the sorts of tools that they used in their work. Um, so there was a lot of like, you know, hand in hand um, passing of the baton uh, back and forth as we made this uh, project. Fortunately, I get along with my wife creatively. Uh, so that works out very well. <laughs> yeah. So for instance, um St. Albertus Magnus, uh, David was researching him and um, found out that he was really into falconry and, and wrote about falconry and was really passionate about it. And I said, well, that is so cool. I have to put a falcon in the illustration. I mean, that, that just would just be awesome. Yes. <laughs> now, what is your all's background that made you all decide to write a book like this? I see. Well, funny thing is, um, this is our very first book. I had been um, teaching middle school for some years. Um, and, you know, I'd sort of observed, uh, you know, w within my students, this sort of sense that, oh, you, you can't, you know, really believe in God and embrace the science, um, the sciences. And then Jacqueline sort of encountered a, a really uh, significant event with uh, one of our, our close family members. Right. So, um, so David and I have had, uh, you know, somewhat creative careers since we met in college and um, yeah, uh, a, a family member, young family member who was about seven at the time told my mom that um, science and religion just don't go together. And we were just flabbergasted by that, statement that someone so young could have such a cynical view of the world and think that you have to choose. Um, and in doing a little research, we found out that that's actually not that uncommon for kids his age. Um, most kids kind of leave the church uh, and become disenfranchised around the age of 13. So we knew that this was, um, as Bishop Barron called it, sort of a detritus that, that is plaguing uh, the church right now and that we had to address it. And we thought, um, what better way to address it than to inform these kids about all these great scientific figures throughout history who didn't feel like they had to choose. They were both faithful Catholics and they were devoted to the sciences. And many of them were game changers in the sciences. Jacqueline's right. We, we have this tremendous sense of uh, we have to do something about this. We have to get the message out that um, you can embrace both the sciences and the, your, the Catholic faith. Um, Dr. Chris Baglow, who wrote the foreword to our book, wrote a really terrific book called Faith, Science and Reason on the Cutting Edge. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really on an academic level. Um, it's a terrific book, but it's not something that I think young people 
say the age, you know, 13, when people are actually leaving the church, it's, it's not something I think they're going to pick up. It's much more for college students, grad students, that sort of thing. So we felt like there needed to be a book like that, but for kids in a, a kid friendly language. And um, thank goodness it was for kids. I don't think I could have written what Dr. Chris Bagley wrote for uh, grad students. Um, and I had to do a ton of research, you know, to make this book happen, um, even on a, a kid's level. Well, but I have to say that, you know, I enjoyed the book and I found it to be enlightening for any level. You know, if you just want a short, you know, explanation on uh, the history of some of these fabulous scientists and uh, mathematicians, you know, the book is excellent. Oh. Well, thank you. Yeah, our hope was that parents would read it with their kids and discover some things that they themselves didn't know. I mean, as as faithful Catholics, there were so many things that we, we didn't know um, and that we ended up learning ourselves as we did research for this book. Um, and and we're just blown away by so many of the figures in this book. <laughs> and uh, I appreciate the compliment. You know, I... Um... My background is really in writing and in uh, film and video production. And when I had to start writing about some of these uh, characters like Maria Agnesi, who made calculus accessible, I'm writing her biography and I've never taken a calculus <laughs> class in my life. And so I had to you know, do a lot of digging and watch YouTube videos. Okay. Let me start with what is calculus? <laughs> um, and uh, I, I learned a ton myself. And, and I do think, although it is, uh, you know, geared towards young people, it is something that, that anybody can learn from. Um, the biographies are inspiring, not because I'm such a terrific writer, but, but because these people lived inspiring lives, because they, they did incredible things. They, they married their faith with their science and, you know, they pursued truth on both fronts simultaneously. And um, many of them wound up changing the world and the way things work and the way we understand the world. I'm still shocked that some I willingly studied calculus. Oh. <laughs> like I watch those same videos and I still don't know a, a lick more about calculus. <laughs> now, before we get too far into this, uh, can people get the book? Uh, because uh, okay. I heard that the first printing was sold out. <laughs> it did. You know, we had a, a little uh, nod, a little Bishop Baron bump, if you will. Um, <laughs> he made a video and endorsed the book, and um, it sold out within 24 hours, and they went into your second printing. It is available now um, through Pauline Books and Media and the Word on Fire store. So you can find it in either of those locations. Wonderful. And uh, it, it's still Christmas, so if you need something for a niece, nephew, or one of your kids, order the book. Right. And it's not too early to start thinking about Easter. Exactly. <laughs> now, I uh, wanted to talk to Jacqueline a little bit about the illustrations. You talked about uh, uh, Albert Magnus. And, uh, you know, the Falcon that you wanted to put in there. What did you use for inspiration uh, uh, for, you know, in general, the theme that you looked for when you were doing the illustrations for this? Because they're beautiful. Well, thank you. Um, 
you. I appreciate that. Um, so making the illustrations was quite a process. Um, so as, as David and I would research different figures, um, you know, I would see, first of all, is, is this person was living in the time of photographs or was famous enough to have a painting done. If, you know, there was an actual likeness that I needed to, to put into the illustration. Um, and sometimes that would make it a little more challenging. And then the others where there was no, uh, no pictures or etchings or paintings of them, I got to have a lot of fun and I got to, you know, get really creative. But um, I wanted to make sure that everything was historically accurate. I wanted to make sure that there were no anachronisms in any of the the pictures, that everything was, um, you know, whimsical, you know, with the, with the um, text that I would include, but also having that historical accuracy so that kids would be drawn in and realize, you know, these are real figures. These are people that really lived. Um, I tried to uh, make sure that in the illustrations, I, I, you know, put people maybe in their younger years. <laughs> so, um, you know, so kids could also relate to that. Um, so it wasn't just, you know, a bunch of old men <laughs> in the book. Um, so, so once we agreed on a list of figures, uh, I worked really closely with the art director at Pauline and, um, and their team. And I would come up with uh, two to four sketches for each figure. And uh, from there, the team would look and say, oh, you know, we really like the way you've done it here, but could you incorporate some of the elements from this sketch into that? And um, from the sketches, I would really buckle down and try to get uh, get really accurate references to make sure I had those tools and those objects and the clothing as accurate as possible. Um, so we, we got a lot of friends to help <laughs> and they modeled for us. Um, and we, we took photographs uh, to help me uh, with those uh, final illustrations. So in one case we rented a costume and um, in other cases we just, you know, like my friend Jordan, who's on the back cover posing for Copernicus, we just draped a black cloth on him and we made him hold the basketball. We got the lighting right. And then in, you know, when I was doing my final illustration, I put a globe there. <laughs> so not a basketball anymore, but I wanted to make sure I got the lighting right. So all our models got, got paid with a, a free book. <laughs> and, uh, and, and the notoriety, the fame. Uh, of course. <laughs> yes. They're, yes. I told him you're all supermodels. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Um, yeah, so it was, it was quite a process. And from there, from getting those reference photos, um, I had to make sure that, uh, everything was to scale with illustration, which as David said, this was our first book. First time I had illustrated a book, there was a lot for me to learn. Like you have to have, um, a bleed area and margins and, you know, make sure you don't put anything important in the gutter. So um, there's a big learning curve for me, and the ladies at Paul and I were very patient with me. Um, and uh, from there, the completed illustrations were done in ink washes and uh, graphite with a little bit of Conte pencil to, to put some highlights in there. Just think how much easier the next book's going to be. 
Oh, well, I- that's what I keep <laughs> telling myself. I'll say, well, we'll do it. We'll do it even faster because uh, we're pros now. <laughs> Didn't mean to interrupt you, David. What were you going to say? Oh, oh, I was just going to add on to what Jacqueline was saying. Um, you know, I had the, the privilege of watching Jacqueline as she, you know, brought these illustrations to life and um, what she didn't mention, you know, these, these things often took her about 20 hours a piece. So, um, you know, they're very, very time consuming uh, pieces of art. And I, I, uh, I'll brag on my wife right here. I don't think you really find people doing these sorts of illustrations um, very much. This isn't the style that's that's common in books, especially in children's books. And, you know, I think it's it's really terrific um, that, you know, Jacqueline and I were lucky enough to get Jacqueline to illustrate our book. <laughs> now, there's something else I wanted to bring up about this book that I found absolutely fascinating. The number of women that you all have in that list of 25. Were you surprised to find... That many women? Well, you know, from the beginning, I I thought, well, you know, we're, we're making this book. We knew of people like Gregor Mendel and Georges Lemaitre and Louis Pasteur. And I was like, David, this, this book cannot be just a bunch of old men. We have to get some ladies in there because I really want to inspire the girls of today. Yes, you can get into the sciences, you know, use your brain. And if you're passionate about it, you can be a pediatrician, um, you can be a chemist, you can do what, whatever. So our goal was to have at least a third of the bios be women. And, you know, that actually wasn't that hard of a task. Um, I think a lot of people like to think, well, you know, um, you know, women have been suppressed, suppressed by the church and, you know, not allowed to use their minds. And, um, you know, in some cases, yeah, I mean, women were, were not allowed to, you know, do the same things men were in history. But I mean, we found significant examples as far back as the 12th century with St. Hildegard, who was essentially <laughs> a medieval pharmacist. It's like, oh, you have this ailment. All right, try some witch hazel. Um, and she wrote about that in her book, Physica. Um, and then we have Laura Bassey, who I think was the first female professor. Of physics. Of yes. physics. Okay. Um, and then uh, Maria Agnesi, she was a mathematician. And then you've got uh, Sister Hilary Ross, who is instrumental in finding a, uh, a cure for, for um, Hansen's disease. Um, and then Sister Miriam Michael Stimson, who was a chemist and a real uh, DNA pioneer. You have uh, St. Gianna Beretta Mola, who is a terrific scientist, while also just being an incredibly inspiring figure, just um, a selfless hero. Um, Sister Mary Kenneth Keller was instrumental in uh, developing the basic language for computers. She was a pioneer in computer sciences. And then um, our book ends with Karin Oberg, uh, who's an astrochemist and a professor and um, one of the two living scientists uh, today uh, who is featured in our book. So we were, yes, having, having women in the book, super important and um, eye-opening for me too. I think, I think often these stories aren't getting told and what a privilege that we can tell them from this sort of Catholic frame of mind. 
Again, I want to remind our listeners, we're talking to David and Jacqueline Warren, the authors of the book Brilliant, a story of 25 Catholic scientists, mathematicians, and super smart people. And uh, remind our listeners again uh, where they can order the book if they would like a copy. Sure. The book Brilliant is available through the Word on Fire store as well as Pauline Books and Media. They have it as well. Um, wherever fine books are sold. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, I would like to go back to uh, where you all start the book, and that's uh, St. Hildegard of Bingen. And I read her story. Yeah. Uh, I was telling Jacqueline, my mother was born in Bingen in Germany. And I'm, no I'm embarrassed to say that I knew very little about St. Hildegard. And I was just fascinated by her story, especially the fact that she wrote her own language. Yes, yes. How about that? Uh, don't be embarrassed. I mean, these, these stories just haven't been told enough. And I don't think they've been uh, made accessible enough for people today. Um, yes, yeah, St. Hildegard, what an inspiration. Um, she was creative. She was a playwright. She wrote the largest collection of music from the medieval times that we have. She put all of the psalms to music. Uh, she invented a genre of plays. The, um, you, you know, she, she was just incredibly creative, and yet she was also a scientist. She was, she was doing pharmacy, um, and in Germany, she is considered the, um, the founder of, of natural sciences in Germany. So, yes, St. Hildegard of Bingen, um, just an incredible human being. Yeah, and Pope Benedict made her a doctor of the church, which is really cool as well. Um, she, I read some of her writings. She had these visions um, that were highly symbolic, and she would write them down, and she kind of explained the the meaning of these visions. So definitely a polymath. <laughs> like, yeah. I guess they didn't have Netflix and iPhones back then, so she was really had a, she had a lot of time to devote <laughs> to all of these things. Well, that uh, is the fascinating thing. Her interests seem to be so far ranging, and the fact that yeah. she lived almost a thousand years ago. And yes, we, yes. we talk yeah. about, you know, women have been held back in the church and there's nothing in her history that indicates that anybody in the church was at the least disturbed by what she was doing. Matter of fact, she was encouraged. Right. I mean, she was an advisor to, to powerful men and you know, she ran her, her own monastery. And um, right. yeah, she she yes. <laughs> I think people moved out of the way <laughs> to let her do her thing. And she defended theology. There was, there was some anti-Catholic, uh, it was Ferdinand Barbosa. There, there was somebody uh, who was um, basically challenging the theology of the church and, and she defended it and she she helped settle disputes. Yeah, she was an incredible woman. Um, any way you look at her, uh, who is who's successful in that many ways? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> you could put her in a book just about creative people, and she would fit in right as well there. Well, I think uh, one of the things that uh, we tend not to recognize is that in order to be named a doctor of the church, your writings have to be meaningful for all generations. That they have to have it be impactful. Mm -hmm. And so by making her a doctor of the church, basically what Pope Benedict was saying is that her writings are of such import that they're meaningful for every one of us. And that, again, I mean, 
from yeah. a thousand years ago. Yes, and I'll tell you, um, one of the things she wrote about, and, and this book does not go very in-depth with it, you know, just considering the audience that it's for, but sure. St. Hildegard was very interested in, um, you know, the, the dignity of sexuality, and she was very interested in, um, you know, although they, I guess the term hadn't been coined yet, theology of the body, she was, um, she was just, you know, a thousand years mm-hmm. ahead of her time yes. um, and, and talking about the dignity of a woman and the dignity of a woman's body and uh, how a woman's, you know, natural processes do not make her unclean as some people believed. Mm-hmm. So she was um, in, incredibly progressive and, and she's one of the best representatives of what the Catholic Church is all about. And this is one of my hopes is that when young people read this book, that it doesn't end there, that their curiosity right. is stoked to the point where they start looking not just at these people in depth, but at other Catholics and other scientists who don't doubt that God exists because of their science, not in spite of their science. Yeah. Right. And I would hope that for for young kids, like you said, or, or even the grownups that are reading this book along with their kids, that they gravitate towards someone in the book, like St. Hildegard or St. Albert the Great, um, that, you know, you can, you can pray to these people for their guidance and their intercession um, and, you know, and helping you discern things like ethics within the sciences. Um, you know, that was, that was one thing that really stood out to us as well is uh, people like Jerome Lejeune, they allowed their faith to inform their scientific practice. Um, they, they didn't uh, do things that were unethical um, because, because their, their faith, you know, told them which way to go, if, if that makes sense. So, yeah, I would, I would encourage, you know, anybody that, that reads this book, if there's somebody that you gravitate to, keep researching and, you know, for the, for the saints in heaven, you know, pray for their intercession and their guidance. Yes. Now, we've already talked a little bit about Albertus Magnus or Albert the Great. And um, again, one of these people that was not just interested in one field, you know, (laughs) he looked at everything. Yeah, he did it all. But. I was fascinated. Uh, most people don't know what an influence he was on St. Thomas Aquinas. Right. Thomas Aquinas was his student. Um, and, of course, in, uh, in their classrooms, um, Thomas Aquinas was made fun of. He was a heavy set guy, and I guess he didn't speak up very much. And so people called him the dumb ox. And, um, you know, it was it was Albert the Great who recognized Thomas Aquinas's, um, you know, skill and, and said something along the lines of, you all call him a dumb ox, but one day his theology will, you know, resonate throughout the world. And uh, indeed, they, they did work together quite a bit. And um, there was a period of time later on in Albert the Great's career, uh, there was this, this movement in Paris to get rid of all Catholic professors they said that, you know, they didn't belong in the university system. And it was Thomas Aquinas who defended Albert the Great and basically kept Albert the Great's job. Um, so it's, um, 
it's amazing how, how closely they, they knew each other. They influenced one another. They were um, deep friends. And they had a deep respect uh, for one another's work. And of course, um, Albert the Great wound up outliving his student, Thomas Aquinas. Um, but Albert the Great was the one who made the Sumo Theologica um, more accessible to people. Albert the Great, you know, took Thomas Aquinas's work and said, you know, this is really what it means. And, and um, one thing I was fascinated to learn in researching for this book, the Summa Theologica, um, a lot of people had written it off as heresy. A lot of Catholics came across it. Are you familiar with this, Deacon Mike? Yes, I had heard that. Um, okay, yeah, a lot of people thought it was uh, heretical. And the reason they thought this was because of the way it was written. Thomas Aquinas would um, start by writing the sort of anti-Catholic stance. He would say, this Catholic belief cannot be true because, and then he would, um, he would argue even better than his intellectual opponents could. And it was only after he got through that portion, he said, actually, the Catholic stance is true because, and then he overcame the own arguments that he had built up. You know, he did the opposite of creating a strong a straw man. He actually made a strong man out of the argument and um, and then overcame the argument from a Catholic perspective. Um, so a lot of people, you know, well-meaning people who came across the book, they started reading it and they only saw the anti-Catholic argument and they thought it was heretical. So it took it took Albert the Great saying like, no, 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 you've got to read a little bit further. You've got to to really see what Thomas Aquinas is saying here. And And now you know, the, the Summa is embraced. Um, although I will say very, very, very difficult for me to read. Um, More difficult than calculus. Oh, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one of the things that, uh, also played into this, of course, was, uh, St. Thomas's use of Aristotle and the fact that he was relying on a pagan philosopher for a lot of his, uh, skeleton for his work. And uh, he was accused of watering down theology, and his response was, no, I'm making wine out of water. I love it. Oh, I haven't heard that phrase. I love it, though. And that's what's so beautiful about Catholicism. When there's truth, we can just embrace it. Um, And even if the truth comes from somebody who doesn't have all of the truth, Mm -hmm. well, the thing they said that was truthful, we can embrace And when you look at science and you look at Catholicism, what are they at the core? They're they're both a pursuit of the truth. Now, I'll go so far as to say that the truth is a person. The truth is Jesus Christ. And as Catholics, we know that. But when when the sciences reveal something truthful, they're revealing something about the creative nature of God. When we explore creation, we are studying God's work, and and we're learning something about his creative spark, his creative genius. Um, so, so I mean that's that's just the beauty I think of this book, and and what I was reminded of again and again with each of these biographies um, as I was writing, I was I, I just kept learning. My goodness, and so many of these these Catholic figures began their scientific journeys not as Catholics, um, but as agnostic or um, maybe a, a person of a different faith. And it was through their scientific journeys that they 
you know, that they came to start believing in God. I think Nicholas Steno is a great example of that. The uh, father of modern geology, he came up with the geological um, concept of superpositioning um, and, and, you know, came up with a much more accurate idea of how old the earth was. But, you know, he didn't start off Catholic. He started off as a scientist who said, I'm not going to believe in anything that I can't measure. Um, I can't put God on a scale. I can't measure him. So uh, I don't, I'm, I'm not going to believe in him. Right. But um, by the end of his life, he was a bishop. You know, what a journey. Mm-hmm. Well, I wanted to end with uh, Karen Oberg, but the uh, same sort of thing with her, you know, joining RCIA and becoming Catholic. But uh, again, uh, want to remind our listeners, I'm talking to David and Jacqueline Warren about their book, Brilliant. And um, we've been talking about some of the people that uh, you've included in the book. And you talked a moment ago about this understanding as, for us as Catholics that truth is truth and that where it comes from matters not. It's either true or it's not true. But usually when we talk, especially to young people nowadays, and you bring up the belief that Catholics see truth as truth, you hear this, well, but there's Galileo. And I like the fact that you put Copernicus in your book because Copernicus actually published the heliocentric model of the galaxy before Galileo did. He sure did. Yes, he was, he was uh, way ahead of uh, Galileo. And, um, you know, a, a lot of people had problems with that. A lot of people wouldn't embrace that. And the Galileo controversy is complex and often misunderstood. And I feel like we would have been opening a whole can of worms just to, to write about him in the book. Um, but it's important to know that, you know, his research was funded by the Catholic Church. And, um, you know, um, and, you know, funny thing about Galileo, my goodness, I've, I've heard stories and there's even a song called Galileo, um, which says that his head was on the chopping block for, um, you know, coming up with scientific discoveries. And um, the funny thing is, no, he was not tortured or killed by the Catholic Church. That is historically inaccurate. He died in his villa and he was in his 80s when he died. So he had a pretty long life for the time. Um, but, uh, it, I mean, gosh, that would be a whole other situation to talk about. But uh, Copernicus, certainly uh, an inspiring figure who, who actually proposed and published on the revolution of the celestial spheres. The, uh, you know, his work is paramount and what started the scientific revolution. You look at who started the scientific revolution and it was a Catholic. Yes. He was a third order Dominican. This was a guy who did. Oh, and by the way, the, the, the book on the revolution of the celestial spheres, you know who the dedication is written to the Pope, <laughs> the Pope who like, you know, wanted him to do this research. So, uh, yes, Copernicus, completely a faithful Catholic. I would think that one of the things that people need to keep in mind when we talk about this conflict between or this supposed conflict between science and religion is that the reason there was an issue in the first place is because almost all the scientific research of the time was conducted at Catholic universities, at Catholic schools, at the behest of the church. 
and that it was only in trying to figure out how do we explain this in light of scripture that the church usually put on the brakes and said, hey, we need to look at this before we start throwing this out there, which might confuse people. And it's only... Yes, yes you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. And it's only that, uh, you know, because the Catholic Church actually believes that the truth is the truth, that they were willing to do this. You're absolutely right. And, uh, yeah, I, I mean... I, I don't think Catholics get nearly the credit they're due in our culture for the university system, for um, all of the scientific breakthroughs. And there's so many more than our book contains. Um, you know, Father George Lemaitre was the father of the Big Bang Theory. And prior to his work, the scientific community sort of had this consensus, this understanding that the universe was eternal, that the universe itself had no beginning and no end. Um, and it was Father George Lemaitre, a Belgian Catholic priest, who, um, who looked at Einstein's work and said, well, now if the, if the universe is expanding, it must have been compressed one point into a cosmic egg. And if it was compressed, then, you know, it must have started expanding at some point. And, and um, he's the one who said, okay, well, the universe actually has a fixed moment of beginning. It actually has a history um, that it started. The universe is not eternal. It doesn't go on forever. And it, it hasn't always been here. It started with what he called the big bang. And um, scientists rejected that initially, but it's actually much more in line with Catholic theology that God is eternal and that God created the universe in a specific moment in history. And it was Father George Lemaitre who um, convinced Albert Einstein of the Big Bang Theory. And, and now uh, the Big Bang Theory is known as the uh, Lemaitre-Hubble Law because it was confirmed by um, the astronomer um, Hubble with the Hubble telescope. Well, yeah, and the telescope shows like the, the 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 photographs that were taken that the universe is indeed expanding. So it it proves the point that that George Lemaitre came up with that the universe must have been compressed at some point. And I find it interesting that uh, when you look at it, uh, Albert Einstein was one of the people at first that dismissed uh, dismissed Father Lemaitre's theory and said that it right. couldn't be. Yeah. And afterwards, Einstein actually apologized to Father Lemaitre. <laughs> <laughs> they did become good friends. That's right. And then uh, Einstein invited uh, Lemaitre to, to speak at an incredibly important conference for scientists. Um, there's so many stories like that. And um, even going back to Copernicus, um, a lot of Christians took some poetry from the Bible. I think there's a Psalm that says something along the lines of um, see how the earth is fixed in its place or something like that. Like the earth doesn't move, I think is, is this very literal scientific reading that many Christians took from the Psalm. And I, I say they were not recognizing the genre that they, they were reading poetry um, and that it shouldn't have been taken scientifically literal, but there were a lot of scientists uh, and Christians who said, no, the, uh, the earth is fixed in its place and the sun revolves around the earth, um, you know, uh, and, and that's, that's called geocentrism and that's wrong. That's incorrect. It was Copernicus, you know, who was, who was willing to prove things the other way. Well, but the thing that people, the ones that make the argument that the Bible isn't true because of things like that, 
uh, fail to understand that to this very day, we still talk about a sunrise and a sunset. They're figures of speech. Nobody actually believes anymore. Well, there's a few people that do, but (laughs) nobody really believes that the sun actually sets or rises. It's the earth that's moving, and yet we continue to say that. So are we all liars because we say that? No, it's a figure of speech. You're right. And, you know, I I was not always Catholic myself. I converted to the faith um, when I was in college, and Jacqueline had a lot to do with it, but that's another podcast. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that's episode. But, um, you know, I, I came from a Christian background, um, which rejected ideas like evolution and uh, put a lot of doubt upon ideas like the Big Bang. And the reason was that we, we took the Bible quite literally, um, every single bit of it. But, you know, the Second Vatican Council said that the key to interpreting uh, scripture is sensitivity to genre, right? We have to make sure, you know, are we reading poetry? Are we reading something that's historical? Are we reading something that is um, mythic in the sense that it's it's like folklore that that helps us understand the nature of our relationship with God? I'll I'll say not everything in the Bible is meant to be taken scientifically literally, and I that that sort of Catholic approach to interpreting Scripture I find exquisitely attractive. I think it's just it, 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 it kind of leaves room for science to do what science is supposed to do. Um, and it's in that lens that I can say there really is no contradiction between science and the Catholic faith. Right. God doesn't want us to turn our brains off. He, he gave us our brains. And who is his son but Jesus, the word made flesh, the logos, the logic, the genius of God. I'm borrowing from Bishop Barron. Maybe <laughs> hey, what's up, Bishop Barron? We'll make you spaghetti sometime. Uh, before we close, and we're almost at the end of the interview, I can't believe this, but I wanted to touch a little bit on the last person in your book uh, mentioned, and that's Dr. Karen Erberg. Uh, astrochemist. Yes. Also, uh, she uh, helps lead the Society of Catholic Scientists. And she wasn't originally yeah. Catholic. That's fascinating. <laughs> right. She's about our age. And it just makes me feel like I've done nothing in my life <laughs> when I hear about all her accomplishments. But um, what was really cool about doing research on her is that she's still alive. And so we got to communicate with her. Um, and we, we had to ask her, okay, like take what you do and put it on like a fifth grade reading level because we will not understand. Um, but, uh, the, the work that she does is just so fascinating. And, um, you know, I mean, we're, we're in an age where we can really start to explore some of the far reaches of the universe. And it's just amazing to me that she is at the forefront of this. Right. Um, and, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, and what's so amazing to me is the fact that it, it went in reverse, that it is her science that helped lead her to Catholicism, not lead her away. Yes, yes. Um, she did not come from a particularly religious home. Um, she didn't grow up going to church or anything like that. It was, you know, she studied at Caltech. And 
Uh, and then she, you know, went to uh, Harvard and Cambridge um, and then became a professor, a tenured professor, um, you know, at, at Harvard. And she's in her mid thirties or something like that. <laughs> and, um, you know, just incredible. But, you know, what, what some of the ideas I think that sort of influenced her, she, um, she believed that good and evil were real. She mm-hmm. believed in free will. And these ideas sort of challenged, um, you know, some of her, her thinking. Um, so she got to know some Christians and then, you know, the, the two big game changers, she read mere Christianity by CS Lewis Yeah. and a short hour into reading it, Karen decided to become a Christian and then uh, she joined a church and kept learning more. And then she read the book Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton. And uh, shortly after that, she joined RCIA. And um, she felt like the Catholic Church was the one that was the true faith that had authority. Okay, um, we're going to have to cut know, off the interview. We're out of time. Uh, again, uh, I'm okay. talking to David and Jacqueline Warren about their book, Brilliant, which you can find at Pauline Bress and uh Word on Fire and uh, anywhere else they sell fine books. Uh, Thank you all for being on the show. Thank you all for tuning in. Next week, Gene Wilhelm will be your host on the Red Sea Roundup. Until then, when considering the many ways which you might share your time, talents, and treasure with the people of God, always round up. No more outside.